Welcome to the Susquehanna Valley Baptist Pulpit, preaching a life worth living, abundant life in Christ. And now the message. Notice your notes, if you will. As we enter this study of the seal judgments, it's important to reconnect with a very important truth. There is no prerequisite for the Lord to come and rapture His saints. The Bible teaches that His coming is imminent. Imminent. Let me give you some reasons this morning and we'll look at several scriptures of why is the imminent return of Christ important. Why is the imminent return of Christ important? Number one, the imminent return of Christ is important because it is emphatic in scriptures. It is emphatic in scriptures. And you have here on your notes uh, partial, because I can't fit them all on, um, the complete verses on there, but you can go and I want to encourage you to do so. But as you look down the scriptures, the soon appearing of Christ is referred to often in scripture. Uh, it's if the early saints were to await the great tribulation, these words seem out of place. In fact, let me back that statement up or add to that statement because, you know, there are really three major views at the end times, uh, a pre-tribulation, pre-millennial view or a post-millennial view and an amillennial view. And then there's a split off of post-millennialism uh, called uh, mid-tribulational or pre-wrath. Uh, and that's always an interest to me because they kind of take stuff out of both groups uh, at random. But the interesting thing about that is uh, to hold a mid-wrath view or a pre-wrath mid-tribulational view, really what you're saying is the saints of God have to go through the first five seal judgments. That's what they're putting you in. And that the rapture, as it were, of the saints would not occur till the end of this chapter 6 where the angel decries the day, great day and terrible day of wrath is to come. And that would be the announcement of the seven trumpet judgments. And so from this point of view, there is a covenant that is signed and uh, there is famine that exists on a global plane and there is um, uh, meteorological, astrological events that are occurring and there's the death of mass huma uh, of humanity that exists. All of this is part of these seal judgments. And for those that would hold that the Lord comes back to redeem His own pre His wrath, that is chapter 6 is how they're looking at it, what you're actually saying is there is no immediate return of Jesus Christ. So the reality then is, what did Paul have to look forward to? Three years, give or take, of tribulation. That's what you're actually saying. You're saying that John, the beloved was looking forward to three and a half years of tribulation. And that Peter, the writer of Hebrews, is looking forward to three and a half years of tribulation. Keep that in mind as you think of these verses. Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul speaking about the, the, the physical uh, emptiness of the body and how it was wearing down uh, in chapter 8. Three times the word groanings is used. He talks about us groaning in our spirit. He talks about all the world groaning, the earth groaning for her redemption. Uh, he talks about our bodies growing, groaning. And then he uses this phrase, we wait for the adoption of our bodies. Now, you would think if he was looking forward to three and a half years of tribulation, or all seven years of a tribulation, he would not use the immediacy of something that he was looking forward to. Because I promise you, growing old in this time 
is far better than going through any of the tribulation. In Romans chapter 13, which we'll look at in a moment in some detail, he admonishes the believers to watch and pray for our salvation is nearer than when we believed. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 through 9, and I've just put a portion of verse number 9 here, he says in reference that we wait for his son from heaven. Why would you be waiting for his son for heaven? Would you wait for all the tribulations to come if Jesus Christ wasn't going to come right now? He goes on in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. He admonishes them, let us watch and be sober. By the way, sometimes you'll hear folks talk about how this idea of the imminent return of Jesus Christ has only been around 100 years. That's a false narrative. Justin Martyr, one of the preachers of many, many years gone by, I'm talking about, think about 100 A.D., believed in the imminent return of Jesus Christ. Why, in Pennsylvania, 100 plus years ago, maybe 150 years ago, you had a group of believers met outside of the Ephrata Cloister area. And though our theology would be distinct, it's interesting that they took these very literal. And every day they would awake, or I should say every evening they would awake from the midst of their sleep and they'd go out in their front yard and they guess what they would do? They would watch. You know what they believed? They believed that Jesus was coming right away. I think if you just read the scriptures through in its full essence, you'll come to the conclusion Paul's not looking for tribulation. And by the way, Paul wasn't looking for his own death, as we'll see in a moment either. He was waiting on his son from heaven. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, let's watch and be sober. James chapter 5, the judge standeth at the door. You think of someone getting ready to come. They're walking through the door. And my children tease me sometimes about, um, you could tease with this as well, you know. I'll get ready to go, say let's go, and then we'll, we'll make about 40 steps and we'll pause and we'll talk a little bit longer. I see in invoking that you get here, the idea is Jesus is at the door. His return, he need not get up and get ready. It could happen any moment. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 5, let your moderation be known to all men. The Lord is at, in three and a half years, he'll be at hand. In seven years, what do you denote? The emphasis is at hand to me. Immediate. I think of another one, 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. You know what Peter believed? Peter believed Jesus was coming in his lifetime. It's at hand. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 14, Peter admonishes them after two, three chapters of absolute focus on false teachers and on perversions to the faith and on the coming of Jesus Christ and the day of the Lord that shall be as a thief in the night. He says, of all of these things, be diligent that you may be found of him. Titus chapter 2. There the, uh, the verbal looking for the blessed hope looking for the blessed hope. Again, I would submit that if I'm looking for a mid-tribulational point of view, I'm looking not for the come of Jesus Christ. What am I looking for? I'm looking for a temple. I'm looking for a land. I'm looking for an antichrist. I, I really, I think as believers, that's what our eyes needs to be on. We're looking for the Savior's return. Hebrews chapter 10 and so much the more. He's speaking there about fellowship in the house of God, forsaking not the assembling of ourselves together, 
but so much the more as you see the day approaching. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 11, this is written to the last of those seven churches. He says, Behold, I come. And he uses an adverb that, that is to reflect upon that, that verb come. He says, I come how? Quickly. And in case you're wondering, you move down all the way to the end of the book of the Revelation. It's all summarized nice and neatly. Revelation chapter 22 and verse 20. The Lord says it again. Surely I come in three and a half years from this moment or in seven years. You know, I can respect a lot of things, but I think about these, these uh, post-millennialists that are waiting for the world to get better so that they can experience a thousand-year kingdom and then Jesus can come back. I think it's far easier as we narrate the scriptures to believe that the imminent return of Jesus Christ is emphatic, emphatic in scriptures. Notice the second thing, if you will, not only is the coming of Jesus Christ emphatic, but it's enviable in Scripture. It's desirous. It's enviable in Scripture. When we speak of the return of Christ, the writers of the Scriptures, particularly Peter and John, they often include we and not ye in their references. We and not ye. Now, you take Paul, for instance. We know a few things about his life. You take John, for instance. We know a few things about John's life. We know, for instance, John was an old man when he begins to write 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, when he writes the Gospel of John, and when he writes the book of Revelation. Uh, when I say write, you understand that I, I fully, un, fully agree and support the doctrine of the Spirit of God moving upon him in inspiration. I'm just saying that when God moved upon his heart, he was an old man. He wasn't a, a teeny bopper. He wasn't a kid. He wasn't a teenager. He wasn't a middle-aged man. He was an old man. The estimated writing of 1st, 2nd, 3rd John and Jude definitely put it around somewhere between 70 and 90. That's a 20-year window. You're talking about a fellow that's in his 80s and 90s. Now, we know about Paul something too. Paul physically dealt with a tremendous amount of physical abuse for the gospel of Jesus Christ. In so much, he says, I bear in my body the marks of Jesus Christ. You know what he's saying? Read over in Zechariah. He said, In that day, the coming day, that the Jew will look on him whom they have pierced, the riveted side. They'll see the nail, the, the hands that are pierced. And where have you received these? They will ask. And the Lord Jesus will say, I have received them in the house of my friend. We often focus on the pierced hands and feet of our Lord in the side, as we should. When you look at the Apostle Paul, literally his body bore scars for the cause of preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Both of the physical and I likely think the emotional as well. And so much then we know that he had a physical infirmity of which God would not deliver him, but simply said, my grace is sufficient for thee. And when you consider all these, here is an old man, and here's another man plagued on every account by physical infirmities. You would think... If they believed that the coming of Jesus Christ was a thousand years from the moment that this was penned, or if it was three and a half years from when this is penned, that they would not have included the we, they would have said ye. You include the we if you believe with the fullness of your heart that he could come at any moment. 
80 and 90 year old men do not plan for something that's going to happen 100 years from now. People in advanced physical infirmities are very cautious about anything they plan on the horizon. These men are actively looking. Notice if you will, let me finish that last sentence. Since they were living, the natural assumption was that they too would witness His coming. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Then we which are alive and remain shall be called up, my emphasis, together with Him. And so, the balance of that verse goes, shall we ever be with Him that's a powerful indicator. You know what Paul was looking for? Paul was not looking for death. He's in prison. The end is looking. 2 Timothy chapter 4. I have finished my course. I am ready. I have finished my course. Henceforth is laid up for me. Do you remember what was laid up? Crown of righteousness. And not to me only, but to all those that love is appearing. We, he would say. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 6, he admonishes them in seeing of the coming of the Lord, let us watch and be sober. John, the aged, writes 1 John chapter 3, Beloved, he says, We know not when he shall appear, but we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. When he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. You see the commonness there? It was enviable. John and Paul both believed that they would be part and present at his coming. Not only is it enviable, it's essential in Scripture. The imminent return of Jesus Christ motivates the believer. It motivates the believer. When it's realized, i.e., the, the essence of the uh, imminent return of Christ, it points the believer to a life of dedication, Focus and holiness. Turn, if you will, to Romans. Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter number 13. Several, well, I guess it was at the beginning of the year we dealt with a series, maybe even the end of last year, about Titus chapter 2, verse 13, looking for that blessed hope, the glorious appearing of a great God and Savior, uh, Jesus Christ. And he goes on. And he, he's emphasizing the preaching of the doctrine of Jesus Christ and the living of a life that is in direct harmony with that gospel despite the culture that you're living in. That's the theme, if you will, of Titus 1, 2, and 3. And at the centerpiece is the imminent return of Jesus Christ. Nothing will ever cause a believer more motivation and stir them to greater focus and holiness than believing that Jesus Christ could come at any moment. That is true on a practical level as well. Let me ask you a question. You were all children at one time. You're at home. Mom and dad is gone. You're a teenager, you know. You know everything. And you're present. And they've left you a list of things to do. And they said, I'll be back. When are you going to get back? When I get back. You know how hard it is? For you to really put intelligent, intentional motivation through there. But if you know that they could come back in five minutes, man, you're like a whirlwind. You're getting everything done. There's something about the necessity of the human life. When we don't know that 
when something is occurring, it causes in us all reason in this life for procrastination. Paul in Romans chapter 13 is instructing them of the essential quality that because Jesus could come at his moment, every moment, throw off the yokes of procrastination. Throw off the natural uh, desires in life to be about whatever distraction you are. Because he can come at every moment, you better be at it when he comes. Look in Revelation chapter 13, Romans chapter 13, verse 11. And that knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. His imminent return. He's not talking about your salvation in a sense of a soteriological expression where you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and I shall be saved. He's talking to believers already. He's talking about that moment when you're no longer in the presence of the earth. That moment when you as a child of God no longer have the opportunity to labor and serve God. It's nearer than at any other time. The night is far spent. That's the reign of Satan in reference. The day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. That word armor, you remember from Thursday night, that's hoplon, hoplite, is the reference there. It's referring to the Greek citizen soldier. Something like we would have as a militiaman or a national guardsman, a guy that really is dual vocational in sense. And he's telling you, put away all the common things of life and rather embrace the weapons of light. Get ready. Be prepared. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in riotousness and drunkenness, not in chamberings and wantonness, not in strife and energy uh, of envy, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill thy lust thereof. What's his motivation? Why, why should you put off the flesh? Why should you put on the armor of God? Why should you forsake strife and envy and chambering and wantonness and all of these desires? Why should you uh, walk honestly? Because he's coming at any moment. You must, needs, be ready. And sometimes, and this is a, a sin of youth, I think, sometimes we look and we always think that tomorrow's going to come. We have this idea that we're going to live forever. Anybody that's lived any years of time, you know that's not the case. Well, friend, you will not always have the opportunity to witness and labor for Jesus Christ. If you don't do it now, you'll never do it. You do not always have the opportunity to be a shining testimony for Him, to live holy in righteousness. You're not guaranteed tomorrow the imminency of Jesus Christ. This is why it is essential in Scripture. Number four, there's the effectualness in Scripture. It's effectual in Scripture. It means it's working. Christ's imminent return delivers His saints from the wrath that is to come. Oh, I mentioned on the onset, Revelation chapter 6, that wrath, that first seal is the opening of God's wrath being poured upon the world. And part of that is man will accomplish the hearts and thoughts and desires of his life. As Christ opens each of these seals, the wrath of God is being unleashed. And that's what the imminent return of Jesus Christ, that's what it works. It works to remove all of his children out from under the wrath that they have been saved from. 
Notice 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 10. He's talking about that they had turned from idols to worship the living God. And this Jesus which delivered us from the wrath to come. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul makes another emphasis there. For God hath not appointed us to wrath. So it's effectual in Scripture. Number five, and I must hurry, it's endearing in Scripture. Believers look to the imminent return of Christ with great joy and hopefulness. It would be an awkward thing to look for it with joy, uh, with tribulation. If you thought tribulation was coming in three years, you wouldn't, you wouldn't be joyful for it. In John 14, 3, he says, I will come again and receive you, receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. In Titus chapter 2, looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of the great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 22 and verse 20, the Lord said, Even so, I come quickly. And John responds from his heart and through inspiration, Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Man, John saw all of the book of Revelations and concludes with, you can come just as quickly as you can get here. I'm ready. Doesn't sound like a man that's going through any periods of the tribulation. Unlike the imminent return of Christ, there is a definitive timeline for the beginning of the wrath of God. That is the great tribulation to be poured out. Imminent return of Jesus Christ happened at any moment. Nothing needs to happen. Boom, we're gone. We're checked out. But that's not true with the great tribulation. The Great Tribulation has definitive timelines that are laid out, and there are two embodied in the same entity, and I would submit to you it is the same that is going to occur in Revelation chapter 6 with that first seal being opened. Two things. This timeline for the beginning of the wrath of God that is a Great Tribulation. Two things. The first, there will be a Christless man. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 then shall that wicked be revealed. The Old Testament and New Testament mention on several occasions about the coming of this man. So that rules out, well, I shouldn't say that, should I? A lot of political figures will not be the Antichrist. I'll leave it at that. Christless man. Five references here, and I'll move quickly. Daniel referred to him as the little horn. Daniel references him as the prince that shall come. Later in chapter 11, he calls him a willful king. Paul in in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 calls him the man of sin and in the same verse, the son of perdition. And John in John chapter 2 and verse 18 calls him the Antichrist. You see, before the tribulation can begin, there has to be a man of sin. Number two. I'll give you the second thing that has to happen before that tribulational time clock can hit go. Not only must there be a man of sin, but there's something this man of sin does. There has to be a covenant made. A covenant made. This coming prince will make a covenant, Daniel says, with many for seven years. The start of this covenant marks the beginning of the tribulation. That's what launches this out. And Daniel is full of this. Daniel talks about there'll be so many years, three and a half years of peace, and then three and a half years in which he'll persecute the Jews, particularly the nation of Israel. And three and a half and three and a half is, that's where you get seven years of tribulation there. But the signing of this covenant, 
He'll make a covenant with many for seven years to start the, or mark rather, the beginning of the tribulation. In reference to this, Isaiah the prophet wrote uh, almost 2,600 years ago in chapter 28 that the children of Israel would make a covenant with death and hell. Truer words could not be written. For this coming prince will be empowered by all the powers of hell and will proceed with great death upon them all. In Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, he talks about a covenant with many. Yes, he'll make a covenant with the Jew, but he'll obviously make covenants with others as well to broker that accord. As we behold the crisis of today and the problems of tomorrow, we must rest assured our blessed hope, and this is very important, that is the imminent return of Jesus Christ is not tethered to a problem or a politician, nor is it tethered to a parcel. Believe it or not, I don't need Israel to have the Gaza Strip and the West Bank and the Golden Heights and the Negev in order for Jesus to come back. If Paul didn't need it, think about the math. If Paul didn't need it for Jesus to come back, are you with me on the map? There was no nation of Israel. If John didn't need it, there was no temple. If John didn't need all that to happen for Jesus to come, why now do I? They're two different entities. It's not tethered to a problem or a politician or a parcel or a pact. The return of Christ can happen anytime between now and this coming covenant that will be made. So the answer to the question I started out with, I don't know how much time there is between Revelation 14 and Revelation, uh, Revelation 5, 14 and Revelation 6, 1. But I am submitting to you that there are two different things. The imminent return of Christ and the commencement of the seven years of tribulation are two different events. They do not need to happen simultaneously. Yet I'd be remiss if I did not add, they could happen simultaneously. Father, thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact us, please write us at P.O. Box 126-541, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, 17112. And visit our website at www.svbcpa.org. Until next time.